Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and some audio excursions into Irish culture. And this time we'll perform some literary revisionism at Davy Byrne's pub in Dublin, savour some pandemic nostalgia with Carpet Theatre Company, and enter the painted world of Kieran Murphy. But we begin inside your head. If the image you see in your mind's eye when you think about a conductor is a white man on a podium, it's certainly time to update your files. But even if recent years have seen more women conductors break through, there's still an imbalance on stages everywhere. Working to fix that is the National Concert Hall's female conductor programme, led by conductor Alice Farnham, offering women conductors workshops and masterclasses in their skills of their calling, as well as career advice and even coaching in public speaking. Culture Files Louise Williams went to meet Alice Farnham and some of the young Irish conductors who've just completed their time with her. I'm Alice Farnham and I'm a conductor and I've just finished a session with uh, the second cohort of the female conductor programme at the National Concert Hall. It's really interesting to watch you at work because you're sort of picking up on their body language, trying to encourage gestures, the look, the gaze. How does it all come together? What is it to be a conductor? Ultimately, conducting is communicating your musical intentions to a group of people. So um, that is communicating, partly speaking, but mostly through your gestures and through your hand gestures and your body and your eyes and your face. So you're wearing a mask all day, so that can't. Does that is that is that inhibiting you a little yeah. bit, and is it inhibiting the participants? It does make it a lot harder for them. This is a this is a particular challenge right now at this moment for them not to be able to use their whole face, but they can still use their eyes, and they can also still completely embody the music in in their in their arms and in their their hands, their their whole body, their whole stance, their whole way they stand on the podium. What do shoulders say and what can you, how can you encourage your shoulders to sort of communicate as a conductor? Yeah, I think that's a particularly fascinating thing and particularly um, actually for women because what I've noticed uh, when I started the conducting programme um, in the UK actually back in 2014, I was constantly getting the conductors to put their shoulders back they were always bringing their shoulders in. Um, uh, that's improving, I think, generally what I've noticed. with the, I've worked with nearly 500 women now. And what I've noticed about uh, women generally is that they feel a bit more comfortable in their skin and they're able to stand in that way. But the minute you put your shoulders in, then, of course, you, you look less confident uh, or you might look bored. Perhaps there's all sorts of things that reflect back onto an orchestra. The hardest thing for me has been building up the confidence to get up to the podium and not just beat through the music but actually use it and express what I want to express to the music. It's finding a vocabulary that you have to hand so you're not sort of having to think at the moment, oh, what's the gesture for this effect? You're so you can be 100% with the music. I was very uh, reserved at the beginning. So um, I can feel 
the music inside, but it's very difficult for me to get that out and to show the musicians what I want. I think it was actually the last weekend we had here, which was maybe back in December, and at one point I just let go. And I felt like I really just got there. Got what I was trying to say across, um, and, and now having had that eureka moment, um, I feel far more comfortable just letting go now in front of the musicians as well. So Convincing myself or building that I am now in control of the room, I have this power and I can do whatever I want with it really. I can make loud soft, I can experiment with everything. And when there's a pause, you control that pause. Yeah, the silence is the most amazing thing. At any moment where there's just that breath again, but in a different sense that you're holding the sound. I mean, I was a musician, I was an organist and, and a trumpeter, um, and part of my organist role as a student, I had to conduct the choir. And actually, as a 19-year-old, as a I was completely terrified of doing that. I really, really didn't want to be um, a conductor at all. I sort of had to do it. And then I found that I enjoyed it more than playing the organ, actually. I enjoyed the communication side of it more. And then I went to study in Russia for three years and that really by the time by my mid to late 20s I was absolutely determined to be a conductor. Was it challenging? Really challenging yes <laughs> I mean yeah it doesn't begin to say I mean it's not a it's not an easy it's not an easy option if you for a career there's there's no guarantees of work as is true for for most jobs in music. Earlier I said to you something about kind of the masculinity of, of, of conducting and traditionally it has obviously been a very male-dominated sector. And you kind of, in a way, pick me up on it and it isn't per se a masculine sector or a masculine role. Yeah, well, I think traditionally we've had this idea, this image of, of the, the conductor on the podium. Um, if, you, if you Googled an image of a conductor on a podium f- five years ago even, you would be hard-pushed to find a woman. They were all men, generally quite old, with lots of hair flying around. So I think the idea of it being masculine, in a way, if you really look at what a conductor actually does, it doesn't really make any sense. Um, It's authority, but authority is musical authority, it's gravitas, it's all those things which... And actually I'm reminded of my conducting teacher who was born in Tsarist Russia, so he was born at the very beginning of the 20th century, and he died in 1999, and he just said... Uh, people criticised him for teaching female um, conductors and he just said, well, to be a good conductor you have to communicate your musical intentions to a group of people and a woman can do that as well as a man. Alice Farnham of NCH's female conductor programme sponsored by Grant Thornton. You heard also from conductors Emily Cox, Margaret Bridge, Shirfrini Gould and Maureen Nagul. Louise Williams was the reporter. And next, a conversation about painting with artist Kieron Murphy. Murphy's touring exhibition, Merrily, 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 opened in the Butler Gallery, is currently at the Model Sligo and will move its slowly persuasive, finally hypnotic images to the RHA Dublin in the autumn. Kieron Murphy spoke to Culturefile about painting's place in our image-saturated lives. 
One of the stops on the tour for your latest painting show was at the Butler Gallery, which is quite close to your home. I guess that allows you to go and uh, see people interacting with your paintings in a way that you normally wouldn't. Yeah, that was a really interesting uh, possibility. And I wasn't uh, stalking anybody, but I did go in uh, a few times and uh, just uh, it was interesting just to see how people engage and just what one imagines, you know, somebody going to a show does. But one thing that was quite nice was just to see the range of age groups. So there was like, say, children just asking simple questions like, oh, what is that that I see? Which is, uh, in some sense, you know, a nice interpretation. The small paintings almost demand intimate encounter, almost like reading a book where you have to go pretty close to see what's there. And I think these are things that people who make sculpture automatically think about. But for me as a painter, although I intuitively knew something about this it was quite helpful to actually see my work in situ and just see how people negotiated with their bodies the natural history museum is a place i've returned to since i did a painting in 2005 of a beautiful snow hare that lives there and there was something about that painting that really worked for me and after thinking about it for a while i think it's something to do with the way the hare embodies a kind of ambivalence it's stuck in the past it's like a victorian relic but it's also obviously in the present it's dead but somehow symbolically alive it sits between being a representation of a word the hair and an actual thing so for me there's something to do with those ambivalences that kind of really interested me and pointed us a way forward to try and make my next work and in a way it just provides a really interesting kind of contrast to say, I don't know if anyone say uh, encountered a f- more fleeting experience of an animal say for example uh, encountering a deer or a hare or something like that where it's all almost kind of spectral where it's like oh did I even see that or say encountering an animal in the dark where its uh, presence is far more fleeting or unstable I've kind of moved those concerns, say, of uh, thinking more uh, about images in general in the world, which also have a very kind of fleeting presence in our lives, more and more so. It's like if anyone was asked at the end of the day, so what images did you look at today? I guess it would be very hard to recount even like a small percentage of them, but nonetheless we're, we're immersed in them, but they're... They're more in us than we are in them. Although my interest started in the Natural History Museum and uh, taxonomies and classifications, I guess my interest over the years became more broader and just trying to negotiate a world that's saturated in images and what are the possibilities with painting for maybe to reflect that kind of fleeting presence of images or that, you know, the possibility for a kind of slowed down looking that painting uh, might enable. Tell us the story of there's a certain sort of green that we see in many of the works and it relates to that quality you mentioned, a, a sort of spectral, a, a quite not quite there, images, for instance, of um, animals or birds, but they're, they're also not quite there and it's a, it's a thread that runs through many of your paintings. So I first saw that green colour because I was um, painting images of a 
I think it was a Caribbean sea and it has this very unusual type of green. It's almost like the sand is the brownie sand penetrates through it slightly. It's also reflecting a bit of the sun. So there's a lot more going on than just simply the green colour. It has a kind of context and kind of subtleties to it and ways of applying paint that aren't simply like a flat green. You know, it's transparent and there's something that's peeping from under the surface. So it has a an illusion of depth. Somehow when those uh, qualities are transposed onto something else, like, say, a body part or something like that, it takes on some kind of strange quality that, uh, in a sense, it kind of makes me a viewer of the work because I didn't quite plan it that way. And for me, that's always a, an exciting uh, possibility as a painter. The element, as you say, of something fleeting, of something moving away or, or always leaving the frame is quite important in your work. Why is painting the best way to address that quality? I mean, you might imagine that, that video would be a way of doing that. I guess maybe you, you, you think of paint as a time-based media. With painting, I always think what's interesting about it is trying to push its limits in some way and not in the sense of, say, not painting on canvas or more, you know, not in that sense, but actually accepting the limits of the frame, but also what can you, like, say, for example, as you mentioned, paintings aren't moving images, but nonetheless, within the framework of painting, one can give a sense of movement, more or less, like, say, Turner is a very famous example of that, of clouds passing, or trying to capture that sense that actually time is passing here, you know. So even though it's not a moving image, it can give a sense of moving. And likewise, I think it can give a sense of, uh, to mention animals again, it can give a sense of uh, even sound in a sense. I like to paint birds that look like they're uh, squawking or animals that are howling, things like that. So it gives a sense that even though painting can't make sound it kind of evoke sound so that kind of mingling of the senses and um those kind of possibilities like i like in some sense the limitations i heard a really nice kind of analogy to do with a uh, country music where a painter merlin james was making this comparison um where it's it's like this genre that has so much uh really awful examples and just really hackneyed uh possibilities but also there's like artists who somehow manage within the limits of that genre to do something new without actually pushing outside of the genre so I think painting always kind of holds that possibility of what can one do with one's uh, limitations. Kieran Murphy there and that exhibition Merrily 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 is at the Model Sligo until March. You're listening to the Culture File Weekly and next the fine art of breathing. The latest from Carpet Theatre is Breath, a show built from the tiny habits and desperate rituals of the pandemic and created between director Kieran Taylor, actor Carl Quinn and fiddler and multi-instrumentalist Steve Wickham. Culture File talked to the team about Covid aftershock and staying with the trouble as well as good and bad breathing. Back in uh, January 2020, I uh, happened to bump into Steve uh, Wickham in um, a hotel in Manchester. 
and we got chatting and uh, we, had, we had done a couple of projects before and uh, I've been dying to work with him ever since but he's been touring the world with the Waterboys and various other bands so it's always hard to get him and then uh, when the pandemic hit I thought oh they'll be going off the road he might have some time I'm Steve Wickham musician I've been breathing now since about 28th of October 1960 and it's, it's I love it I have to say there's a great Bob Dylan song do you know a Bob Dylan song called Idiot Wind and one of the lines in it it's a wonder she still know how to breathe it's like we forget about breath a lot of the time because it's come so instinctive to us it's it's our life, bring it out. But in fact, there's, there's, I, I see lots of parallels. It's a kind of a it's a binary thing, in out, in out. With the violin, you've got up bow, down bow. With the concertina, you've got suck, blow. I'm not sure about this tie. It's just, oh, for God's sake, Nathan, will you make your own toast? Yeah, I'm gonna. I had this idea, I wanted to work with the idea of breath because I think the breath in acting is really carries you know, emotions and moments and memories and if you get the audience somehow to really concentrate in or sometimes they're unaware of it but, it, but if, if the performer is breathing in a certain way they get caught up in the emotion so you know, if you're holding a breath um, the audience tend to hold their breath as well so we wanted to do something where we're making people really aware of what how breath tells the story tells us what people are thinking and feeling but also of course that's very strongly linked to music you know because phrasing and music so I'm just really interested in bringing those two ideas together but then of course you know Covid attacks our breath and suddenly breath is thrown into focus in a different way as well so there's this problem of all of us sort of waiting we're sort of holding our breath over the past few years you know what's going to happen next should I do this should I do that but also the fear that you know your breath is you're going to lose your breath and you know the the trauma that people went through with that Carl Quinn actor breathing used to be certainly for me having done a little bit of yoga and stuff like that breathing was was very much about life and you know allowing the breath to come in and it gives life to the body and to the organism and releasing tension on the breath and so it was kind of a beautiful thing and it suddenly it had become a poisonous thing you know this is how you get the disease this is how you suddenly got aware of other people's breath you know wondering what's being carried on their breath so there was definitely a a shift in relationship towards breathing (coughs) and breath Breath, the lost art of breathing, I think it is, because everyone's reading it at the moment. And it's very interesting about the rhythms of breath and things that are common across cultures, the breath that is sort of relaxing and the breath that is energising and so on. And how, in fact, in the Western world, we're getting very disconnected from our breath and our even our physiology is changing um, to make us less efficient. And so we're having all these respiratory problems. So I think that's an interesting background. Have you been working on your own breathing? I have, actually. (laughs) What's your method? Well, the simple thing that I picked up was actually that breathing through your mouth, in or out, is really not good, particularly when you sleep. You know, it leads to snoring and all sorts of things. So, yeah, breathe in and out through the nose and um, uh, try and empty your lungs and short breaths in through the nose. And in exercise, it's actually really efficient. So I used to be huffing and puffing, you know, doing my, uh, you know, press-ups or or whatever I've been trying to do during the lockdown. Are you all right? Did you get out today, ma'am? Yeah? And did you uh, get some fresh air? Ah, no, it's important to get out and get some fresh air, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah, no, you don't need to be afraid. No, 
no, no, that's, that's not outside. That's... I realise if you breathe through the yeah. nose, it's sort of, it calms you down, you're more energised, you get more longevity. So that was one of the things that I picked up that I've been practising. And the other is this idea that there's this perfect breath, which is about five and a half seconds in and five and a half seconds out, which is really calming. And it's, it can be linked to the timing that's there in a lot of um, religious mantras, including the Hail Mary. I was sort of interested to, to see how theatre would restart because I kind of was wondering, would people, you know, after, after the, the Depression or uh, in, in periods of great social convulsion, that people want to not to dwell on the micromanners of the pandemic and to live somewhere else. But you, you're going to, to offer them the, the life that they want to escape in some ways or are happy to escape yeah we 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 thought about that but actually you know the all the best art confronts the traumas that are there and and really even if you know you didn't suffer any specific trauma and you know this is sort of about everybody it's about the the the, the, the general experience there's something that happened time will tell what the long-term effects of it are but i think it's really healthy to, to look at it, people are laughing. I mean, they're saying it's like, oh, yeah, it's a really serious subject, but it's just great to sort of recognise ourselves and to laugh and realise and also connect the dots, you know, and go like, oh, yeah, go through the, the phases. We bring people back. They go like, oh, we, oh, I'd forgotten that we did that. I'd forgotten that the kids went home at Christmas 2020 and didn't go back till uh, 2021 Easter, you know, um, and, and all the different stages, you know, the, the, the summer of 2020, which was a beautiful summer, and uh, so many people went camping, you know, and... Uh, uh, for the first time in decades, <laughs> including myself. So, yeah, you know, usually, you know, after traumatic times, you know, people want comedy and, and so on. But I think we're giving them both, we're giving them a chance to reflect, but also a, a comic look. Is there an album there in what you've created? I think so. I'm thinking about it. I'm going to record all these pieces. Well, you want to join the, the genre, like there's the breakup album and now there has to be the COVID album. I think that, I think a lot of musicians are processing it. I think a lot of people, artists came out immediately and got on the internet and said, this is what it's like being in COVID. I'm, oh, here I am, I'm playing my tune. I'm trying to A lot of just just bare trying to survive. But a lot of artists, I think uh, music artists, will look at this further down the line and parse it and process it and it's surely going to affect every single creative in the world has to The breathing of Carl Quinn there, and you heard also from musician Steve Wickham and director Kieran Taylor. And Breath concludes its tour at the Civic Theatre Tower this evening. And on the centenary of James Joyce's Ulysses, a crucial development in Joyce studies, or at least in the way the writer is celebrated in the pubs of Dublin, or more accurately, in one pub in particular. When Joyceans make their annual Bloomsday stop-off in Davy Burns pub in Duke Street, it's been the tradition to celebrate with a gorgonzola sandwich and a glass of burgundy, as Bloom himself did in the book. But according to Joycean and librarian Frank Boucher-Hayes, there's another drink we should be ordering a potent cocktail of orange curacao and french brandy earlier today culture file joined frank boucher hayes at the bar at davy burns to hear why the second cocktail i think it was called napoleon's champagne but the first one was was um creme de cacao creme de banana i think and then there was a little bit of cream in it and there was brandy as well so quite a potent uh, drink 
quite a sweet tooth, the emperor. Now, when people come here on Bloomsday, they, they have a very traditional order. Uh, well, they would go, come in for um, this glass of red wine that, that uh, Leopold Bloom would come in uh, and he, for, and he would enjoy it with uh, Gorgonzola uh, sandwich. But what people don't realise is that Joyce himself preferred a different type of drink, uh, and it was specifically it was a cocktail. And the cocktail was a mixture, a uh, compound of brandy and orange curacao. My name is uh, Frank Boucher-Hayes. Uh, I'm a librarian working in the James Joyce Library in UCD. I came across this just purely by accident uh, recently when I was just doing a little bit of searching. And there was an article written in 1962 which included an interview with a man called John Power who was the barman who used to serve uh, Joyce when he came in to Davy Burns. And he would... Joyce... The routine was that Joyce would work away for presumably a few hours and when he was finished writing he would put down his pen and he would put in his order for, for the cocktail. He could have five or six of them on occasion and might get a little bit contrary um, which is not surprising if you're drinking brandy, uh, several brandies and on one occasion unfortunately uh, John Power had to uh, put Joyce out of the, the pub so the friendship uh, did, did, didn't uh, well deteriorate a little bit after that. I'm, uh, I'm Billy Dempsey is my surname and I'm the owner of Davy Burns. I, I bought Davy Burns, my timing wasn't, ama- wasn't too good, I bought it a couple of months before the pandemic. I only learned about from Frank here through the, some of the paperwork he brought into me yesterday so he, he kindly brought in this and I, I honestly didn't know first of all what it was but then he, he gave me the information and we're delighted because we didn't really know what, what was called Joyce had his usual. And uh, then I look and I read it down with Frank and I see, oh, hang on a minute, orange curacao and brandy. Oh, hang on, that's his drink. He also um, spoke about another man who had an interest in, in um, brandy and orange curacao uh, called Michael Collins. And, and Collins used to come into Davy Burns and, he, in fact, that the revolutionary government um, used to hold meetings here as well. Joyce, when he was here, sometimes if people came in and he saw them coming in, he would give his drink to the barman to put behind the counter because he didn't want it to be known that he was drinking by this particular man. You, you have a bottle on the counter here in front of us. This is your best estimation of, of what the uh, Kurosawa element of the cocktail would have been. It is produced by, by several different companies, but I was particularly interested in, in one bottle because the date on the bottle is 1885, which is three years after James Joyce was born, and it, it obviously fits within his time period, uh, and it's by Giffard. Um, so so I, I decided to try and order that, organise a, a case of, of the um, orange curacao. A case? Are you expecting Joyce? It's impossible to simply order a bottle. They would, they would insist that you order a minimum of a case, so a case is six bottles. I've donated... A bottle to um, Davy Burns. The Merion Hotel has a statue of Joyce in the in the garden area, so I decided that I, that I'd give them a bottle of, of the orange curacao as well, and they're going to um, make it up as a cocktail themselves. I made a cocktail out of it yesterday, Ashley. A little bit of a uh, lemon juice, to it. a little bit of vanilla syrup. It's an interesting combination. Well, we could we could do the purest. We could do the brandy and orange curacao and just see how that works. Yeah, they could actually they could offer what he's talking about as a, as a more exotic cocktail, but then have the regular 
version. His version could be the Finnegan's Wake to the original Ulysses. It's, that's a good way of putting it, yeah. <laughs> you mix like a strong spirit with a liqueur, you should always go 40-20. So 40 mils just to balance it off. So I would do 40 brandy and 20 orange curacao. No ice. Chilled glass, no ice. Smell the brandy and the orange in it. Interesting. Oh, I'm tasting history here. This is very exciting. Very, very nice. Um, I'm very poor on describing what drinks taste like, unfortunately, but it is it it, it is very drinkable. Um, it has a sweetness to it, certainly. It's not my kind of drink, but I'll try it. Here we go. To me, no, that's like a, a strong cough mixture. Well, I, I think it's quite sweet. I don't think I'd be drinking five or six, but I might, I might enjoy one or two. Start with one anyway. Frank Boucher Hayes there at the suddenly very swanky Davy Burns Bar in Dublin, bringing to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more revisionist mixology in the Daily Culture File from Monday and next Saturday tea time in the weekly. Till then, bye now.